0: All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show.
1: I went there during a busy time because I was like, you know what? There's going to be hundreds of people walking by constantly. I'm about to ask people for money. And so I said, okay, I got to do this. Got to try it out, even though that's something that also makes me uncomfortable the idea of asking for something, but it's like, I was at least telling people what I was getting. And there's a target right there where the tarps are. So I was literally asking people saying like, you know, I'm trying to raise $24 because I have to buy two tarps for my tent. I'm currently living on Skid Row and I need help getting my tarps for the rain. I had seen over 600 people that day and everyone said no to me. Everyone like to the point where I've, I don't. I don't sit in like fury often and long because I don't like that energy. I was furious that day. I was so angry by the level of like resilience to help. No one wanted to help me. Like the energy that went into the nose and the not help could have easily solved my problem.
0: Hello, friends, and welcome back to The Light Watkins Show. This is yours truly, Light Watkins. If this is your first time here, I interview ordinary people just like you and me who've taken extraordinary leaps of faith, often in the direction of their path, their purpose, or their mission. And in doing so, they have been able to positively impact the lives of many others who have heard about their story or who've witnessed them in action or who have directly benefited from their work. And today we are re-airing one of my top five all-time favorite episodes since I started this podcast back in 2020. She is someone who lives her values, who's not afraid to shine her light. Her name is Lorea Gaston. Lorea is an author. She's an entrepreneur, a philanthropist, a performing artist. She grew up in New York City. She founded the nonprofit Lunch on Me, which feeds homeless and hungry people in Los Angeles, as well as La Reyes Bodega, which is a store and community space that continues her mission of feeding street involved people, high quality, nourishing foods. And most recently, she published the book Love Without Reason. And even as a kid, Lorea had a knack for seeing the perfection in a situation, even when it seemed imperfect. As she tells it in the interview, instead of drawing exactly what she saw, she would often make an image appear a little bit better. And that's exactly how she lives her life now, always going above and beyond to leave situations better than she found them. Lorea's religious background taught her about the importance of tithing. Now, if you haven't gone to church, you may not be familiar with the practice of tithing, which is giving money back. But Larea understood the necessity of giving what you receive from an early age, and she decided to practice tithing in her community, giving wherever she saw a need. Before she was even a teenager, Larea was using her allowance to buy food for unhoused people in her neighborhood. Fast forward a few years. Through a very successful dance career, and Larea found herself on the other side of the country witnessing the scale of homelessness on Skid Row in Los Angeles that she had never seen before. And she knew exactly what she needed to do. Get closer to it. Get as close as she could to it to understand how best to help. And so for a period of time, Larea actually lived on Skid Row. Not because she needed to, but because she wanted to. She wanted to understand what people who lived like that had to go through on a daily basis and how best to serve them. And what she found was surprising and even shocking. I won't give it away here, but you definitely want to settle in for this conversation. I usually say these stories are going to blow your mind. This one is a little different. This one is going to change your life if you listen to it from beginning to the end. Okay, so let's get into it. I introduce you to the world of Miss Larea Gaston. So, Larea, thank you very much for joining the podcast. As always, I want to start off in childhood talking about little Larea. And so, my question for you is. When you think back to your earliest memories in childhood, what would you say was your favorite toy or activity back in those days?
1: Growing up, um, I would say I loved drawing and painting.
0: What did you love about drawing and painting?
1: I love the idea of creating places I haven't been. I felt very confined as a child. So I feel like between art and books, those are the place I got to travel. And so it was always creating something better. I feel like I've always tried to create a space that didn't necessarily look like my own growing up. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people draw their environments. I always drew something better than what I experienced. I feel like I've always tried to fine tune anything that was. You know, even when I would draw things, I would, I would, would, if I had to draw something in front of me, I'm like, yeah, well, this flower is dying a little bit, so I'm going to draw it at its full potential. <laughs> so, like, I, you know, I was like one of those, like I would find things to draw, but I would, I, I always notice. I would change things. I would always make mm-hmm. them better. So drawing in books, I started reading biographies by like third grade.
0: Was that a conscious thing when you were drawing and making things better? Did you know that that's what you were doing or did someone kind of point that out to you one day?
1: I think that I started to realize that just in life. I think that every time I would draw something, it was, it was more of a perfect version of it. And I think that's something that like over time, I didn't know at the time, I think it was very just innate and natural to me. I always look at things like that, you know, like I wouldn't draw things that were, I didn't like to show what was dying. I always liked to show what was living. And I had mm-hmm. to draw a lot of like subjects, especially in art, I've been in art my whole life, where you're always given a subject, something to a point of reference. And I think i had always naturally made it better. And then even with books, I felt like it was kind of the same thing. I gravitated towards biographies of people that I thought were great at a very young age.
0: What were some of the biographies that, that still stand out?
1: The first biography I ever read was Duke Ellington. I was in third grade mm-hmm. and I always loved jazz music. I've always loved the fifties. Um, I had a very, very strong connection to it. And so for me, reading about Duke Ellington and his life and Miles Davis those things changed so much in my perspective of life, especially great African-Americans. My father was very, he's very, very adamant about me recognizing and seeing people that are great that look like me. He was very co- cognizant at a young age to show me representation that I could do anything and that were people that looked like me were successful. So I think that's kind of what I gravitated towards. It was always Black American history. And great, great people, you know, I remember my father giving me like Frederick Douglass when I was like fifth grade, I was a child. He's like, you want to learn about a a man who freed himself. So I think I I always had been in a space where I was always introduced to real life circumstances, but I always been introduced to people who rose above them.
0: Do you remember any of the lessons that you learned from the Duke Ellington or Miles Davis biographies?
1: Oh, I think the biggest thing was being so young hearing about racism and prejudice and things like that and recognizing people who just wanted to express themselves in art where at the time was very different than, than now in a certain degree, because at that time it was very obvious things that they went through like segregation. So I just remember seeing things that people were faced that they couldn't help, but Mm -hmm. still being resilient enough to pursue what it, whatever it was they loved. So I remember like third grade learning about the cotton club and learning about, how people would have to go through different entrances, you know, things mm-hmm. like that, just to be able to, to share their art, to share their gifts. And I think subconsciously, I've always had in the back of my mind that people were willing to fight fire just to be heard, to be seen, to be understood. And I understood that very young. I mean, I remember like the first entertainers I ever read about were Lena Horn and Eartha Kitt. You know, women who mm-hmm. who took a stance. So even in their art, what I loved is there was always leadership. There was always progression. And there was always an advocacy for people through all of their arts. So I learned very young that art didn't have to just be an expression. It it could influence people.
0: Right. It was a form of activism.
1: Mm-hmm. And that's what I loved. Like, I'm like, wow, like, you know, Lena Horn wouldn't take roles being a slave. She wouldn't take roles that didn't give her the dignity she felt she deserved, you know? So just to see people that were willing to take a stand for what, how they saw themselves and not how the world decided they would be. I understood that very young. I just thought that was like the coolest thing ever. I really, really gravitated towards it and admired that. Mm.
0: Talk a little bit about the cultural background of your mother and father and, and where you grew up.
1: I was raised by my stepfather. My birth mom is Greek. Creole and Irish and that's my biological mother and my biological father is Puerto Rican and Cuban and then I was raised with my stepfather who's black and Italian he's Sicilian and so growing up I have three different sides of the family and everyone's different cultures so I grew up in a space that I grew up where I had seen every form of culture From, for us, like our Black culture was our Creole family, which came from Louisiana. So learning that, learning that part of it, learning Afro-Latinos being from grandparents who were immigrants that came from Puerto Rico and Cuba. And then just having all of my parents being mixed in a time where it wasn't necessarily accepted. So all of them had two sides of the family. So you're dealing with six different sides of the family. So I think it was really amazing that I grew up with that and grew up with family in different social and economic standings because I learned what rich looked like. I learned what poor looked like. I learned what, what culture looked like in America. And I think it definitely helped form my idea of people very young because I was around so many different type of people. I feel like I didn't live necessarily a segregated life where I was just one one family, one upbringing. I didn't live in a bubble. And then my parents were extremely young. Uh, my mother had me at 19 years old. So mm-hmm. on top of that, you know, you have a baby raising a baby. And so definitely not a woman yet, right? Like, you, you don't mm-hmm. know yourself fully in that age. So I feel like there were so many different moments. And then I gravitated towards my my grandmother was more of my maternal figure, So also having a woman who was born in the 30s, I got to learn what it was like to to fight for interracial relationships. My grandfather was black. My grandmother is Irish and Greek. So having these spaces, I felt like I grew up with such a vast, wide understanding of life and and people and how we come in so many different ways and different walks. I learned that very young. And then I also learned the perception of who I would be in life. I would be a black woman in this world, no matter how, how expanded my mind was, no matter how many things I understood. I knew even though the world confined me in one small space, just based off the stereotypes, I knew I had so much more, but I knew how small minded the world was as well.
0: How did you learn that? Was it through the biographies or someone kind of sat you down and, and taught you that?
1: I learned that through being young and people talking about culture and race. I mean, elementary school, you know, I remember kids asking me, well, what are you? Are you black? Are you Spanish? You look a little white. Like I would hear those things as a kid where it was, I was always the question, wait, but what are you? And for me, because I grew up with such strong black leaders, I grew up looking at my parents as their influence predominantly being black, like that overshadowed everything. They, they proudly wrote black and all the things that they did they didn't feel like they were half and half. They felt like they navigated from their, their, their black, their African ancestry. So growing up, I felt so much pride in that. Right. So I was always like, yeah, I'm a black woman. You know, like that was important to me. Like I'm African American. And they're like, but your grandparents speak Spanish. Like all these different things. I learned very young that I was answering questions that came from narrow minds. I learned that about the world just by being in my family, learning where, I, I I always thought all of us had melanin and I know we came from Africa somehow, some way, in different ways. So people would say to me, I could see there was just always this confusion where you couldn't be all things, right? Where it was always narrow-minded. For me, I found so much pride in being African-American because of what the influence in this country has been. What Black people have had to endure and overcome and the influence, there is no culture in America outside of Black culture. It is assimilated and used as culture for all of America. And mm. so I had so much pride. Like, I had so much pride, like, knowing Eartha Kitt and Lena Horn, They were light like me. And they were Black women. Like, having that connection to me was just, I felt like it was a badge of honor, you know? Because mm. I didn't fully, I found the beauty in it. So it was very interesting growing up. and being questioned about my culture or my identity or, you know, was I, I wasn't black enough because my skin wasn't dark Brown or like just hearing the things that you just didn't really understand. Or like, how is, how is your grandma blonde hair, blue eyes and white? You know what I mean? Like there were all these questions that you could tell people were so confused with that level of unity, that level of diversity.
0: Sounds like you enjoyed it a little bit. You enjoyed it as an opportunity to kind of expose people to to these new ways of
1: Yes, because I felt like it was so cool to go to different sides of your family and know, oh, if we're going over here, we're having Italian food. If we're going over there, we're having Puerto Rican food. Oh, I'm having Cajun food with my Creole family. Like I felt like it was such a, a representation of all of my family coming to America to meet because we're only, my, my grandparents are immigrants. So we only have two generations, mm-hmm. you know, just from, From my family, where to me, that was the representation where America showed so many different types of people. How did all my family end up here together? You know? So I love, I love that idea because I got to see the differences and the similarities because I was on both sides. I got to go to different churches. You know, it's like my Italian family, they're Presbyterian. My Creole family, they're Baptist. They're Methodist. Like I grew up in different churches too.
0: And you grew up where?
1: In New York? Yes. And my, my mother went there very young. And then my grandmother lived in Arizona. So I would spend a lot of time in Arizona, like in the summer and stuff. Until so I mm-hmm. moved there as a young kid. But yeah. And then my father's from Philly. So I spent my stepdad that I was raised with. He's from Philly. So I spent a lot of time in Philly as well.
0: Did you learn Spanish or
1: Italian? Not Italian. Spanish, yes. My grandfather, that's their, that's their first language. So my mm-hmm. Spanish, it's broken, but it's good. Like I can speak <laughs>
2: Spanish.
1: <laughs> it is. It's not like it's not my first language. It's definitely my second. But yeah, mm-hmm. I grew up where I 100% understand it because, I mean, it's it was part of our language, you know, like we had to know it.
0: And what lessons do you remember taking when you were attending all that church, Baptist and Presbyterian church growing up?
1: You know what? For me, it was like I grew up in the church, but I didn't find God there. So it was a very interesting space. I was really close to my grandmother. so. Being in a Baptist church, that was my favorite. When I would be in Presbyterian church, I'm like half the time they're speaking Latin. What is going on? I'm going downstairs for donuts. (laughs) You know, I didn't really understand fully that. I didn't grasp that experience as much. But my grandmother being Baptist and that being my best friend, we got different parts of it. Like I definitely would view her and how she's seen church and she got something out of it that I didn't necessarily get. um, Mm -hmm. Because church for me was my community people and so at first when i a lot of it it didn't resonate with me because i didn't have a full grasp on it because i Mm -hmm. felt like every church i went to every church's message was they were the one and only message Mm -hmm. of god and so it was very hard for me because i went to different churches all the time with different religious backgrounds and they were all saying that same thing their stories were so similar but they created such a separation so I think it was mm-hmm. hard for me to experience God in it because I had seen so much separation that seemed the opposite of the God I understood.
0: I've heard you talk about tithing. Did you? Is that something you you got from church?
1: Yeah, I feel like that is probably the number one thing. Like I feel like if if I read the Bible, the, the my favorite sentence it was about tithing because I learned that everything I had was not mine to keep. So I think that it gave me this idea that in order to live, we have to distribute and give to one another. And I learned that we're tithing for people who might not know. It's when you give away 10% of what you have mm-hmm. and it's religiously, faithfully, like that's something where you do not feel everything is yours. Mm-hmm. And for me, I, I used to tithe heavily in church because that's what my grandmother did. That's what my family did. And then I, I started tithing within the community but that is like the number one thing is my favorite thing and even in my spiritual practices and everything else it always goes back to tithing because tidying is powerful to me
0: you would get an allowance and you would give you would give 10% of your allowance
1: <laughs> yeah in church i would since i was a child very i'm talking about young little i was always mm-hmm. told you have to put 10% away my grandmother was I I ad, ad adamant about that, and obviously it was like ten percent is the least you can give. You know that mm. wasn't a max; that was the least. I definitely give more than that. I probably tied. I would say I tied thirty, about thirty percent of my income, maybe forty.
0: And you had an understanding as a child that that was something that was valuable to do. It wasn't man. It wasn't like a punishment or anything like that. It was.
1: It was a joy. Like I, my grandmother always. I mean, I could. I would watch her write out a check. And she would be smiling like just to be able to give. It was definitely a joy for her. She made it where it was like, this is how we help each other. This is how we support each other. And you could Mm. see it in her. There was no, there was never a pressure or thought. She would give and it was so much, she would do it and it was so innate to her that I don't even think she'd remember half the time she'd give.
0: How many siblings did you have?
1: I'm the oldest of eight.
0: And did everybody have that relationship with with church and tithing, or were you kind of the leader of the pack?
1: Yeah, it was different for me because my siblings, um, the next child my mom had is nine years from me. So it's such a big age gap. I have a sister that's 13. Wow. It was such a big age gap because my mom was 19 when she had me. So she you know, was like, let me wait till my 30s to have my next kid. So no, my relationship and experience with my parents was very different. It's like, it's having a 19 year old parent and having a 30 year old parent is very different. And so I feel like we definitely grew up differently. For me, my grandmother was my mom. That's who, I mean, I ran to her. And so that relationship, even in church, even when my siblings were very young, it would be me and my grandmother. I would go Mm -hmm. with her. It'd be her and I. I, that was, I felt like a very, personal relationship her and i they went to church as they got a little older but it was a huge difference but when they started going to church i was already out of church on the streets helping people
0: hey there really quickly have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice but you're not quite sure where to begin well if inner work is like a drop of water the is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the All Access Pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY, and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, back to the episode. Mm-hmm. Did you have a, a con- context for heaven and hell and those kinds of ideas? And wh- how did you feel about that when you were younger?
1: Well, a lot of things for me, I think that from my experience and from biblical terms and coming from a, a very literal place, right? Like you're, you're hearing about the Bible, you're young. I'm just like, wow. Like certain things, I'm like, why is heaven paved with gold? I don't I don't see the value of that. Like I would always- mm-hmm question certain things it did not certain things didn't make sense to me i mean you read about even the old testament god being of wrath and a jealous god that wasn't who i pray to that's not what i connect to when i go to my highest space so Uh it was very confusing because i mean and thank god i had a a grandmother who would let me ask all these questions because i'm like i don't fear god i feel comfort there you know like why would i fear Mm -hmm. the place i feel most comfort so I would always say, Are we are we praying to the same God? And my grandmother, very young, she knew that I always had my own thoughts, my own ideas, and I wasn't afraid. There was no fear based in me to feel like it had to be this way. I just always wanted to get it right, whatever right was.
0: Yeah, one of the one of the elements that I that ends up coming up in people's stories is are these figures that Come into their lives. We call them. I call them angels. I refer to them as angels, not not in a religious sense, but just in a sort of higher guidance sense, where it's, these people are are there to kind of point you in a direction, or like you say, answer questions that you may have, and to give you give you context for what well, you don't. You may not realize is going to be your purpose in life later on. Your grandmother. It sounds like she was one of them. And then I was, you know, I've done some research before this interview and I, I read about this uh, girl named Jamila, which to me sounded like she's also one of your angels. And you had a really interesting story of meeting her when you were eight years old. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yes. Yes. Jamila is my best friend. It's so funny. I talked to her every day. I talked to her before I, I got on the phone with you. Um, <laughs> my My best friend was my grandmother, my Philly grandmother, my stepfather's. <laughs> Mother neighbor she lived like four houses down and she's very psychic even beyond what she'd ever admit she's just so it's just like one of those things she embodies it that she doesn't even say it's that she just knows and it's a matter of fact and that's it like she doesn't even put it in the category but she's so psychic she's so connected mm-hmm. like to past life progression. and Long story short, it was a weekend where we switched, play- where we were both in Philly. We would usually go opposite. She would go to New York on the weekends and I would go to Philly on the weekends. And then one weekend we were, um, there's a fire hydrant in the neighborhood that's on the corner, uh, house where my grandmother is. And I'm, of course, playing in the fire hydrant, <laughs> like because I was like one of those, those loner kids. I'm the, you know, the first child, the only child for about nine years, 10 years. And mm-hmm. long story short, she was claiming her block (laughs) we were kids and she was claiming the block telling me where did I come from and that this was their fire hydrant and I was like my grandmother lives right there long story short we end up getting into it because my best friend is trying to claim a fire hydrant (laughs) and we're children like we're babies and Mm -hmm. and long story short my grandmother comes out and is like Jamila yelling her name. And I'm like, you know this girl because she's giving me trouble. She's stirring trouble with me. And she's like, you guys are both in timeout. And we had to go to my grandmother's yard. And I'm like upset because I'm like, I was playing by myself. She came over to start trouble.
0: Mine, yeah, minding your own <laughs> Mining, business.
1: Minding my own business. <laughs> now I can't play at the fire hydrant. For anyone that didn't grow up on the East Coast, our fire hydrants are like our pools. A fire mm-hmm. department will come, open one and you play in it. Like, it's raining. It's really fun. But we're sitting there and I'll just never forget the day because we're children. And she looks at me and she says, after we were in time out, and she was just mean to me, she goes, you're my best friend. And I'm mm-hmm. like, what? She's like, you're going to be my best friend for life. And she says to me, she's like, God knew no one woman could handle us as sisters, but he knew to give me my best friend. And she just tells me that. And I'm just like, what? Like I'm, I'm very. It's it's over my head. It's deeper than I even understood at that time.
2: <laughs> you
1: know, because I'm like, you just told me I'm your best friend for life. I'm pretty much like your twin sister. You know, like our family call us our nickname, in that and the family is salt and pepper. And so everyone, like in the family, like we're like been best friends since we were children. To this day, we're sisters. I mean, there, I there's no one I could even imagine closer to me. She's an anchor in my life. But it was one of those moments where she told me very, very, uh, that, th- that I would be her best friend. And I swear to God, I've never had a better friend.
0: Is it true that you told your grandmother that when you left the house that day that you were going to come back with your best friend?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I knew it. I felt it. I felt it because I never I never really had friends before then. I was, I was into books. I was into, I played by myself. When she found me, I played by myself. But I knew it. I felt it in my spirit, but it was weird because I didn't think that's how the best friend would come. <laughs> like it mm-hmm. just—it wasn't how I played it out in my head. <laughs> I thought it was right. going to be a little more. We're going to have beef
0: at the fire hydrant and then I'll yes. uh, be a timeout time and mm-hmm. then it'll be and revealed I, to me. <laughs> and I
1: knew it. I knew I had a best friend coming. and I was so little, but it was the first time I was, I didn't know she was my best friend. She knew it. I knew I would, I knew she was coming. I didn't know who she was because I've always like had a sixth sense for like things that would happen before they happen. And Mm -hmm. yeah, I knew it. And she was my first friend and she's still my best friend I've ever had. Mm -hmm.
0: So it sounds like you had a pretty good childhood.
1: I made the best of it. I had, there were parts that were great. There were parts that were horrific, but I made the best of everything, but it wasn't, it wasn't an easy childhood. I, I feel like if if uh, when people describe their childhood, I think that mine was a lot more challenging than most children. I grew up very fast, and it and it was a difficult time.
0: You worked at your uncle's restaurant as a teenager.
1: Yeah, 12. Well, I was way too young to be working.
0: (laughs) Were you working out of necessity or you just had a drive to want to work?
1: It was a little bit of both because my parents didn't have a lot in that way to give. Mm -hmm. And I think that I always knew, like, I never liked to really ask for things just because I knew, like, especially with my dad, not so much my birth mom because I wasn't really close to her. We've had a very difficult relationship my whole life. But my stepdad, which is like my best friend in the whole entire world, I mean, he just worked really hard and did so much for my family that I just, I felt like I needed, if I wanted things, I should just work for them. I didn't Mm -hmm. like to ask. It made me very uncomfortable. But I literally, I mean, I had, that was my second job. (laughs) My second job was my uncles at 12. I had a job before then when I was cleaning real estate offices in the middle of the night from like midnight to five in the morning. Wow, and I was twelve. So I would, um, I was, I had a cleaning job before, and then my uncle decided to have this Creole barbecue business, and had. I mean, I was his first employee, <laughs> and I was young, and I was working. I mean, twelve, fourteen hours on the weekends.
0: Mm-hmm. And you had an experience there at the at the dumpster.
1: Yeah, that was the first time I encountered an angel. Basically, my uncle would leave me there at like midnight, two in the morning to clean up. Basically, I had to do all the grunt work. He, <laughs> he didn't have the best morals sometimes. But mm-hmm. now that I think about it being my age, but um one day I was uh packing everything up, cleaning up, getting rid of food. Like we'd have to throw away food that same day that wasn't sold, like perfectly good food. And one day I was gathering all the food and a man was digging in a trash can. I always say that mm-hmm. this, this was my first encounter with an angel. I've had angels in my life, but this is the first time I was like, okay, this is something supernatural where I, it was the first time I felt in my mind, the stories of the Bible are a hundred percent true, you know, because it was a situation where I offered this man food. He didn't speak. He wasn't speaking. He was kind of like signing, doing these like very interesting movements. Like he was dancing. He was, it was just very like, It was just mystical. It was very ethereal. And I felt a comfort in his energy. Like I just remember being like, this guy should be weird to me, but I don't feel that way. Like I just remember. Was this in the middle
0: of the night or was this in the day? Oh
1: yeah. This was like, no, this was probably like midnight, one in the morning. And I'm there by myself. And I offered this man food. He had a little grocery cart because he was looking at the trash can. He he wanted the food. And it was interesting because everything, like the movement he was making. It was almost like he was like celebrating me. Like it was really weird. Like I can't even explain it. Like he was grabbing his heart. He was doing all these weird gestures. Um, but I understood them. Like I was like, he's treating me like I'm great. This is weird. Like I was like, this guy's being weird because he was treating me like I was, I was royalty. I was wonderful. It was, it was interesting. So I gave him the food. I forgot to give him a drink. I turn around to grab a drink and say, like, hey, I forgot to give you a drink. I turn back around. The man is completely gone, disappeared. The food is still in the basket. The cart is left there and he's nowhere to be found. And there was nowhere for him to go. And that day I was it shook me to the point where I I was so young. I thought I was crazy. But then I was like, I can't really share this with anyone because I'm not even supposed to be talking to strangers. Like, I was just like, I can't really tell anyone. But I'm like, this man just disappeared. And I always say that, like, it makes people feel so uncomfortable. I'm like, no, no, no. I turned around and this man was gone. And the interesting part was, fast forward, maybe three, four years later, my last day working, I saw him with the grocery cart walking by across the street, waving his hand. And I'll never forget that because the whole time I was like, did I I always thought, did I make this up? Did I see this? Like, was this real? Because I questioned myself. and. Years later, he was walking by with the same kind of grocery cart and waved at me, never stopped, nothing. And it was weird because I still didn't know at that time, I didn't know that that would be my path, you know. Like, But I knew that that was like the defining moment where I was definitely faced with a huge part of my destiny,
0: Did you think your path would would be? Did you think it was be artistic or what what were you thinking when you were that age?
1: Yeah, that's all I knew. It was like art, I dance professionally, so it was like I just thought I would always be an artist and dance, like to be I really thought that that was it. I didn't think far about it. I think people would always tell me, "Oh, I would do great." Day, but I'm like, "Okay, yeah, I just I just want to create." So to me it's like if I can escape and go into art, that's all I cared about. I didn't think mm. of anything Obviously, like, I was really good in school. I had an opportunity to go to college, but I decided not to go. I chose not to go because I just felt like I just wanted to create. I was like, I don't want to be in another school. And I was good at science. Like, the only other thing, I I said that if I went to school, I was going to go to school for chemistry to do cosmetic development. But it's only because I wanted to create makeup for women of color. Because at Mm -hmm. the time, there wasn't that in art. There wasn't that, you know. Even when you would go dance and stuff, you're like, oh, my God, there's so many colors. That It's just, like, lacking. So that was the only other thing I could. I knew. I always loved science. That was always fun to me. But art was, like, my heart. That was, like, number one. It was more like science was interesting, and I was naturally good at it. But I didn't. I'm like, I don't want to be in the lab for the rest of my life. I want to be out in the world. And so I just Mm -hmm. made this weird, impulsive decision to be like, no, I'm going to just. I'm just going to pursue art. I'm going to be creative in any medium that there is. As long as my mind can be challenged and I can solve problems and I can create and make tangible things, I didn't care what part of art it was. Mm-hmm.
0: And what did you do differently after that encounter with the homeless man and the food?
1: I started every time I saw someone homeless, I would offer them food and then I loved doing it. I just met such nice people. And then eventually I asked my grandmother if I could not tie it in church and tie by buying people food. And that's how it started, because I was really mm-hmm. scared because I I thought the tiding just needed to be in the church, you know, because that's where I learned it. And my grandmother was like, I don't care what you do as long as you do your part.
0: And your uncle was OK with was OK with you using his food that,
1: no, that he was throwing away? he was not. So my uncle represented <laughs> the most business. It was very interesting because I feel like I had learned the things I would encounter as I would actually pursue this in my life. Because my uncle was like, no, it's a liability. I can get sued. I can get shut down. You cannot give away free food. So I started tithing. That's, that, that's how the the change happened because I would be giving food away. But I didn't, I didn't ask because it was food I was, it was perfectly good food that had to go in the trash. And it was one of those situations where that same food I was giving away was food that I was taking home as leftovers, you know? So it was completely fine. It's just I couldn't eat all of it. The amount of food that gets wasted, no one person could eat. And my uncle represented the corporations I fought. I have fought for a very long time because everyone, you know, it was it was money and profit over people. And so mm-hmm. I I always had to fight that narrative. But it started with my uncle. And at the time, I was just like, it's okay because I'm going to figure something else out. And that's when I started tithing. My money from what I was using at church, I asked if I could just go buy people food if I could. And that's what I would do. I would buy people food. I would give them 20 bucks and be like, here, go get something. Or, you know, if I was, but I always kept my tiny money in my wallet. I always had money so that if I didn't have time to sit with someone to eat with them or order their food with me, if I was on the go, I could make sure that they could eat.
0: And where are you at this point? Because I know you, you eventually relocated to Arizona.
1: Yeah. So at that time I was in Arizona for like three years. And then yeah. <laughs> I went to Mexico for work. It was like one of my right. first jobs as a dancer, because like, again, I was dancing during this time and I was dancing. And then from there I went back to New York and then I came to LA. i have been going back and forth to LA since I was like 21.
0: You were dancing for Pitbull. Yes. and Which is a pretty high profile gig, which means you must've been putting a lot of focused energy into your dancing.
1: No, it was one of those things that, you know, well, no, I love doing it, but it was one of those things, you know, sometimes when you're naturally good at certain things, you don't have to put the same energy as someone that isn't. It was just like a natural gift. Mm-hmm. So it was like something I just literally enjoyed doing. But I stopped because, well, the reason I kind of transitioned and I started doing music videos was because I remember we were doing a video for Chris Brown and mm-hmm. I was like, wait a minute, the girls who are just the pretty models get paid the same as us and we're sweating and dying. I'm about to do some videos (laughs) because I I was like, I'm tired. Like I just remember he wore us out. I remember it was like 40 hours and two days of nonstop Mm -hmm. filming and I was exhausted. My best friend was there and I was like, I mean, and I love it. Like Chris Brown is a very hard worker in dancing. And, but I was like, I, I'm about to start doing videos. And so I started auditioning because it was like, it it worked because I could model in videos and every time they needed a dancer, they could throw me in to dance, you know? So that would happen mm-hmm. to me a lot. I would get hired and they're like, we need one more person to learn this choreography. We're a person short. So it just gave me the space where it was like I could dance and I didn't have to break my neck every time and I could do videos as well. So I started doing that too. And so I did, I mean, tons of music videos. And that was just kind of like, but it was something that I didn't really love the industry. I liked dancing. But I didn't like the industries. I didn't like the politics of it. It just it was a little weird for me because so I was just like a little dirty art kid <laughs> just like to create. Hmm. So it was like there were like extra elements that didn't resonate with my spirit. So I kind of like slowly, unfortunately, kind of was like, mm, I don't know if I want to do this because I'm not the industry part did not resonate my spirit. So I was like, so I started designing clothes because I would always like customize my own clothes, make things. And so I uh, also started a clothing brand because I was like, mm, maybe I'll have a little more control over like the things I do. And I don't have to feel like I'm in the industry. I could do like really fun stuff. So I was always trying to find that that medium and that space where I could just be an artist.
0: So I'm curious, in that entertainment industry world, you're like 17, 18 years old, right? You're, you're out of the States for part of it. You're hanging out with these high profile people. What's your mental state at that point? I mean, because a lot of younger people and especially younger women, they get to be a bit anxious and they have, you know, panic attacks and all this kind of stuff. Depression, maybe even. What was your mental state like?
1: I think I was I was very strong conditioned because I had such a rough t- childhood in certain moments.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: For me, you know what? I saw a lot of drugs and substance abuse and I've never I've never even tried weed before. Like <laughs> I have lived extremes sober life because I and I always tell people I was exposed to drugs when they weren't cute Mm. you know I've been to crack houses I have I have had family members who are drug addicts I have I've experienced some really hard things with drugs not from me and my use but what it's done to families and what it's done to my own family and experiences Mm -hmm. I've had where I just wanted no parts of that I just wanted to do art so it was one of those things that to me it was like no one understood it was like I I didn't understand why music videos needed to have alcohol and smoking. I'm like, aren't we just making something beautiful or aren't we doing art? Like I was so intrigued by like the production side of it. I love that the director could create these sets. I just, I was never a part of that. I felt like I was always an outcast in that part of the industry. People probably thought I was odd and weird, but I didn't do any of that. Nothing. Mm. I was like, this is not what I want. I just, I just want to make art. And so for me, it wasn't a lot of anxiety. I just felt like it definitely made me a little more introverted only because I didn't have that expression. I feel like Mm -hmm. people read people being extroverts by being party animals and doing it. And I was like, no, I'm, I'm not those things. So I just was more connected to like the production side.
0: What was your exposure to drugs growing up? Was it like a peripheral thing or like your immediate
1: family members? Yeah, my, yeah. two of my aunts are drug addicts and I mean, constantly. So I was always having to like, I mean, I was just used to them being on drugs and not being sober and being babysat by an aunt on drugs who's high and she's supposed to be watching us and like just seeing certain spirits that just gave up. You know, my other aunt was on drugs and ended up getting shot. And I was like a block away from her. She ended up living, but she got shot in the head. Like, because of drug use, like, I've seen very harsh, extreme things. And for me, it's just like, I saw drugs when they weren't cute. I didn't see them in just party scenes. I saw them in crack houses. I saw my aunts in rehabs. I had to drop them off at rehabs, you know? So I just feel like everything about it, I just wanted nothing to do with it.
0: Would you see the people in the industry who were casually using, would you see that as. This is the first stage, and I know where this leads to.
1: So. Oh yeah, it scared me. Like, yeah, I lost. I've lost family members from it. I lost. Like, I I went through so much with just drugs and how it takes you from your family. So it's like I think I saw the, the extreme side where people are addicted to the point where like they're on their last limb, you know, where they have to go into rehab. They're you know just. They don't even want to function without with being sober in life. They're not present half the time. Like, I'd seen all that where I just, I didn't, I didn't like, I didn't want that. Like, I just felt like life, there was so much more. And even with the drugs and seeing the industry, I, I saw that no matter how you get into it, it leads to one road. And addiction is ugly.
0: Yeah. And speaking of which, what was the story that you would tell yourself about homeless people when you would see them? Because I'm sure you crossed paths with them going in and out of the crack houses and things with your aunties.
1: Uh Uh-huh. Well, for me, I felt like the difference was my aunt was a drug addict and she didn't die from drugs because we were always there to help her and love her. Drugs didn't kill her. She ended up getting murdered, but drugs didn't kill her. And for me, it was the difference between them and my aunt is she has people that love her that show up for her. So that was the hard part for me is when you're on that verge and no one's checking for you. No one cares if you die. You know, that was heartbreaking because everyone experiences things in life. Everyone that turns to drugs, a lot of times are trying to escape something and The difference is when you're battling through those type of things, you can overcome it if you actually have someone to show up for you, someone to love you, someone to be there. And everyone doesn't have that. And that to me makes the difference. It's when when someone loves you and shows up. Life can take you to like a lot of ugly turns. A lot of things can happen. A lot of pain can be faced and healed. But you, I think everyone needs support in life. And the differences with all of that is my family still loved. They didn't give up on them. And that's the difference between living and dying of drugs. When you have that support, you know, from addiction.
0: And you knew that as a, as a late teen be, from your own family's experience.
1: Oh, my God, yes. I watched drugs destroy two of the most beautiful women I've ever met. Smartest women broken women. Like my two aunts were my favorites, their personnel, everything about them. Like they were empaths. They, they felt too much. They were creative. They were smart, but they couldn't beat it. And I think that was the thing too, is I never looked at anyone as though they were different. So for me with drugs, it was like, I'm no different than these beautiful, smart women where drugs have robbed them of such beautiful parts of their life. So I didn't feel like I think a lot of times people get this superman complex where they feel like, "Oh, I can control it. I can do this." And I'm like, "No. It will take anyone you invite. Like anyone that invites it in in their life, it will take." And so that to me because I saw drugs not in just a party scene, but in really rough, hard ways. I couldn't do it. I couldn't tu- I couldn't touch weed. I couldn't do anything because I watch it destroy people addiction period even with alcohol i don't drink like even i don't i didn't want any form of addiction
0: right you started a clothing line and you were in mm-hmm. new york and then eventually you made your way to los angeles so talk about moving to los angeles and stumbling upon this this 50 block Tent city known as
1: Skid Row. Yes. So I wanted to, so the last time I, I would always come back and forth because a lot of the music videos I did were in LA. Like I would always have to come out here. There was always something that would bring me here, but then my heart would always go back to New York. Cause it was like, yeah, this is, this is, uh, it didn't feel like home to me. There was no home element. There was no family. There was, there was nothing here. that felt like home. The only thing that I felt like I could do was like the industry And that was kind of like bittersweet. I liked creating, but I didn't like all the things that came with it. So when I decided to come to LA and say, you know what, I'm going to give LA a try. It was because you can manufacture here. I really wanted a US made brand and New York is harder to have a US made brand. L.A. is one of the top manufacturing places in the U.S. And so I was like, okay, I can do this. Like That's that's what made me give it a chance is I wanted to expand my brand. I wanted to do more. And I always had access to L.A. I just chose New York over L.A. So coming here, of course, tiding These last 15 years, I've always tied. That's been my thing. It doesn't matter what. I There isn't a city I haven't visited. I can't tell you where the homeless area is because I always would do that. I always make it... A point to go out and help people and find people to to help and be good to. And L.A. I had heard of Skid Row. I didn't understand the depth and level of it until I drove in it. And I just remember the first time I drove in it, I was crying. I was crying because I, I was crying because all the times I had been exposed to L.A., I had been exposed to its wealth. I've been exposed to it, you know, from high profile people, from celebrities, from directors, from music videos. Like I had seen the parts of L.A. that people fall in love with, the access, um, self-made millionaires, artists that become full. Like I had seen the beauties of L.A. I had cried because I had seen the ugly part of L.A. that it hurt me that all this wealth, all these resources and people are left to live that way. And it's not far, you know, like I think about I spent a lot of time in Beverly Hills and Westwood, the West side. that's less than ten miles away, right. I was hurt because I'm like, wait, no one's helping. Wait, I have nowhere near the amount of money as the people I've worked with, and I'm doing more than them
0: so the first day you just you 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 experienced Skid Row, you just mm-hmm. you drove down there, you parked and you just kind of walked around or what 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 was your experience like?
1: Yeah, well, the first time I drove through, and I just went on the block because I couldn't believe it was just block after block after block. I was like, "Wait, what?" Like, because you know, you see a couple people who are homeless, but that I'm like, "Wait a minute, this is." I think the, the the hardest part was the fact that it was so established. That's what threw me off. It wasn't temporary. That was an established space. You know, this is a city that has been built, and they are the everyone's comfortable with this condition. Because it has not changed. So that was what threw me off. And so I, at the time, I'm like, seeing that amount of people, I didn't have enough to tide for everyone. <laughs> like in my head, I was always able to cover the people I knew, you know? I was always able to help. That was over my head. That was so many people. My first thought was, I wanna do more. I'm gonna contact some nonprofits. Because for the last 15 years, well, no, it was 10 years at that time. For the last 10 years, I had, I had never thought really to, I mean, I've, I've done fundraisers for nonprofits for like AIDS foundation and education in Ethiopia and the abuse, abused children's fund. Like I've done a lot of community work prior to my tithing, but I never worked closely with the nonprofit. I would always be a part of some type of fundraiser. And so I was like, Oh my God, like I know this community. I know how to reach them. I know how to. Speak to them. I know how to love on them. I need to hit up nonprofits because they have ten times more than I have. Like I was just thinking, like maybe I could be a drop in the ocean, you know? Like a nonprofit felt like it had so many more resources than just me as a single person. And so I reached out to nonprofits looking for places to volunteer because I just wanted to help. And I hated my experiences. I hated volunteering for nonprofits. I was so hurt by how they treated the people. Cause you're talking about 10 years. I have gone to different cities, different countries, met people who are homeless and been able to reach them, love them, be kind to them. Like it was, it was so weird to go into a space where you thought these nonprofits are doing so much great work. So they're doing so much for the people. And you realize their infrastructure, their blueprint keeps them from making an impact. Their very structure you know, blocks them. It's like they're writing grants to hand out a sandwich and I'm just pulling in my pocket and buying food for a sandwich. Like it just was a very different approach. And I'm like, why are there, why are, why are there all these hoops to jump just to help our people? That's the problem. There's, you know, so I was just confused by that. That's what made me even start Lunch On Me because I wanted to help people. I wanted to gather more people to help people and I didn't want it to be the excuse of a blueprint to stop us from loving people.
0: So before we get to lunch on me, tell me a little bit more about your mother this time, because I, I read that she was she got sick or she passed or something like that. Was that around this time?
1: No, no, no. She passed uh, three years ago now. She passed three years ago, Mother's Day. She passed away, actually, when I was filming our first okay. video. Yeah, that's, yeah, she passed away three years ago.
0: So were you telling her and your other family that, hey, I'm on skid row now and I'm... I'm I'm noticing this huge problem and I'm going to do something about it. Or is this something you kind of just yeah. do on your own and you talk about it Thanksgiving?
1: Yeah. The, the crazy part was I told my grandmother and of all the stuff she did, that made her smile the most. Like my grandmother, that was the first, and I felt like I had accomplished so many things. That was the first time I saw her like, you get it. You got it. You understand that made her happy. And I didn't, I didn't get it because Lunch on me was nowhere near where it's at now. It was just me gathering people, asking people to help me hand out food. It wasn't a big deal. But my grandmother was so happy about that. She was, I never, like, there was no, but you have to understand, my grandmother welcomed everyone in her home. This is the reason my aunts were able to be drug addicts and still come home for dinner. So she was the one, yeah, I had people that, of course, didn't understand it. But she's the only one that said what I was doing was so important. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. So you, you, the first time you you decided to take action at Skid Row, you called people in Los Angeles. Uh huh. And what what was that day like?
1: Well, the first event I did because I was only around like you know people in entertainment. So my first event was called Models Being Role Models. Uh-huh. And so I really, literally, my first event it was nothing but models and like photographers <laughs> because I only knew industry people. I didn't really know anyone in LA outside of industry people. So it was literally like I had probably 120 people come and probably 50 of them, 60 of them were models. But it was a situation where I didn't think that many people would come. So in my head, I didn't really know what I was doing on that scale because I had no background in the nonprofit world. But I was like, people were calling me. I, I had only invited about 20 friends that I knew that were all in the industry that I was like, okay, I know they'll come out and everyone was calling me asking specific questions. And I realized I didn't really have the answer because I just wanted to help people. I just want to show up and help people. So they were like, well, how much food are we going to do? And I'm like, let's feed 500. Like I was just throwing out numbers. I'm like, okay, let's just go for it. So I didn't, I really didn't know. So I'm like, okay, let's, let's feed 500 people. They were like, okay, how many people do you think you'll need? And they were like, well, what do you want us to bring? I'm like, can everyone, I asked everyone the same thing. I was like, I'll make shirts. Can you guys just buy your shirts? So we're all in the same uniform. Basically like there was no profit on them. I was just Charging like the price of the shirt. Can you guys just? And then everyone brings something. So basically, I decided on vegan pizza, cold pressed juices. And two days before, it kind of divinely aligned because I'm like, where am I going to get 500 cold pressed juices from? You know, two days before, I'm walking into a Whole Foods to get like my own food, and Suja, the juice company, is there. Like handing out samples, and I was just like, I literally walked up to them. I'm like, Hey, I'm like, have you guys ever done anything for the homeless? And they're like, No, not really. I was like, I'm doing an event. i um, in two days. Do you think maybe you guys can give us some of your juices? Because it's like they were giving it away for free in Whole Foods. So I'm like, Obviously, you don't have a problem giving away free product. And I didn't really know anything about, like I said, sponsorships and all that. So she was like, You want to give it to the homeless? She's like, Well, how many people are you? Feeding? I'm like, 500 is our number. She's like, No problem. 48 hours later, Sue just shows up with 500 mm. cold-pressed juices. <laughs> and then people were showing up. And I, I was asking everyone to just bring healthy snacks, whatever that was. I didn't really care. Then I had found like this vegan pizza company. I called them and was like, hey, I need to feed 500 people, but I don't have enough money to feed 500 people. So I was like, can you guys help me? And like, I literally started calling places. I didn't care. I was just like, we want to do this. We don't really have the 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 funds to do this. Can you give it to me at cost? And the pizza guys gave it to me at cost.
0: Did you get that idea to call them up after the Suja uh, situation? Did you, were you like, oh my God, I can get people to just donate this stuff?
1: No, I just felt like closed mouths don't get fed. I got to ask whoever I can ask. I just, I didn't even, I, it was just one of those situations I was like, I was honest. I'm like, this is what I'm working with. What can we do with this?
0: But you were prepared to pay for it yourself.
1: Yeah, I did pay for it myself. I didn't, at the time, I didn't ask people for money. I didn't ask anyone for anything because I didn't care.
0: <laughs> Where were you getting the money from?
1: It was my savings.
0: So it wasn't even money that was, you were generating through income. It was just money you were, you'd saved up.
1: Yeah. And I felt like, at the end of the day, like, I would never go broke from helping. Like I always felt like there was this abundance. Like I just, I never had the scarcity complex. I have been dirt poor. I have, I mean, I had said no to jobs in the industry that weren't, that were against my moral compass and had to sleep in my car for a month. I never would sell my soul and my morale for money ever in my life. And I never felt like money, I never felt that scarcity complex because every time I was broke, I survived. The times that my accounts were negative, I survived. So I never had this this feeling of money to hold on to it.
0: So this is an important point. What financial position were you in at the time? I know you had savings, but were you making a good good salary? No.
1: Well, no, I was no. I was just building my brand. I had put all my savings into coming to LA. So I didn't have I just remember this is what's crazy. Right after that happened, I had less than fifteen hundred dollars in my account, and I gave away a thousand dollars
0: on that day. On that first day of feeding the homeless.
1: No, it was maybe like a week later. I went. That's a whole other story. But a week later, I took a thousand dollars out of my fifteen hundred. It was probably fourteen something, like fourteen ninety, and I took a thousand dollars out and put a hundred dollars in ten envelopes and gave them away. To who? To ten people who were on skid row.
0: Wow. So you had fifteen hundred dollars in your to your name, you took out a thousand mm-hmm. and you gave it all out to ten people. Yeah. On Skid and the Roll. craziest
1: part was cause it came to me in my meditation. I heard it clearly. But when I first heard it, I was like, maybe I'm hearing this wrong. Cause in my head, I kept hearing, <laughs> "No, I'm serious." Cause I'm like, "There's no You're way." Like, okay,
0: I don't- is it? You mean take ten dollars out and give one? Exactly.
1: That's how I felt. I'm like a hundred dollars, ten dollars for ten people. In my head, I thought I wasn't grounded enough. Cause I was like, "You clearly are not hearing." Well. I heard it clearly <laughs> three times. This is what's so crazy. I'll never forget this day because this is what made me understand the power of being detached from money and be- being attached to giving. I heard it three times. Then I was like, "Damn it!" I remember cussing after my meditation because I knew that's what I heard, and it was like the moment you know you're accountable. And I was like, "Oh no!" So long story short, I end up doing it, and I'm like thinking, like, "Oh Lord, when it like what uh, this is?" I mean, now I probably have four hundred something dollars in my account in my name. Like that's it. And so long story short, I gave it to 10 different people. It's crazy because fast forwarding now, five years later, I know all those people from Skid Row. And I have to tell you all their stories because half of them are all in apartments now. And that money had to do with their turning point. But that's a whole nother thing. This was just the obedience I heard from being so connected to a higher source, higher power and, and moving from the space of God love. That's what I believe. Because the lesson that happened, this is what's so crazy. That happened to me. I gave the last envelope away. I got in my car. As soon as I got in my car, I got a call to make $3,000 for half a day for like six hours of work.
2: (laughs) But it happened as soon as
1: I turned my car on and I just started crying because the first thing I heard was when you hand out, God will fill up your cup before you even have a chance to grab it.
0: Oh my God. So wait a minute.
1: I know that's like the craziest. I've never even really shared that story yet with people.
0: Tell me about your meditation practice. Just give a little snapshot of what, what what's actually happening. How often are you doing it? Where, you know, tell me, tell me how it works.
1: So I meditate. So during that time, it was a little different. During I that time. Like my pra- yeah. Yeah. My practice has changed a lot from five years ago. During that time, I would start in the morning. I would turn everything off, and a lot of times I would do I would open up my Bible now it 's different i don 't have to open up the Bible to do it before I would open up the Bible I would look for like a like whatever my hand landed on, and then I would meditate on that scripture to ask for understanding, whatever that meant because i didn 't send things i didn 't really understand at the time I was incorporating the Bible in that moment. it was every time I hear words like when I sit, I sit in stillness, nothing around, no phone, anything i 've always. Since my meditation started when I was homeless and slept in my car, that's when I, and I really believe that that was God isolating me to hear, to hear clearly. That's a whole nother thing, but that's kind of where my practices started was I was sleeping in my car. And that was something I decided to do because certain things in the industry, I was not willing to do. And I walked away from it, but I, I always decided from staying in my car Never to move until I heard from God, and so I sit and I would meditation would change every day. It would never be like, oh, I'm doing this for an hour. I would sit until I heard from God. I always would wait till I heard a message, whatever that was. Some days it was be the bigger person, and all, you know, and that meditation, that 24 hours, whatever message I heard, I I carried that out within those 24 hours. Sometimes it's a person will come up, forgive them. I've got 24 hours to call them and forgive them. Like I always listen to God and I, and that's how I, every single day, God tells me what to do in the morning, every single day. I, that's my steps have been ordered for a very long time. And that day was these envelopes. <laughs> and I, was like, <laughs> I was like, God's getting specific.
2: <laughs> and that's how I
1: felt. I'm like, this is getting wild because it was going from like, to me, it seemed a lot more general forgive let go like I would hear things like that to take out a thousand dollars this is going to 10 people then I literally in my meditation I would ask God back like who do I give it to and I would hear God said you'll know and so I did it I that's how I I've moved and there I've never had so much peace in my life ever since I've moved in that way and so in the beginning it was always don't move till you hear from God Now it's so clear. I hear, I hear messages from God throughout the entire day.
0: Mm. You've turned up the the still small voice. It's now loud.
1: It's so loud. So before it was, I have to sit here and I have to wait. I have to figure out where it's coming, when it's coming. And I think a lot of that's when you get into that 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 space of peace. You know, like that shift inside of you, that where you become harmony. And so, what I learned is as I was. Listening to that still voice, I was being tested. Would the voice be louder than the world? And that was the thing. A thousand dollars, fifteen hundred. That's I. That was to me. I felt like that was the voice calling my bluff. Am I really there? Like, have I really arrived? And and the things I want in life. What would I be willing to give up?
0: So, speaking of which, was it true that you were out there six days a week for
1: a year? Yeah, on Skid Row <laughs> every single day. Yeah, yeah, almost two years. Now we're doing. We're now we're at seven days this year because of COVID and everything. But yeah, I was there for personally. It changed. I basically the reason I left was because when my mother got sick, I was in the hospital for four months. So within that time, I started changing my program around where other people could be more involved cuz I was down there for 6 days like every day that was me like religiously I would never let anyone do it without me being there helping when my mom got sick I had to start letting up on the trust
0: wait so it started with monthly right after that first yes. feeding and mm-hmm. then you went to and then you went to daily
1: yeah. So what happened was, for I would say the, the first year, a little less than the first year, we were doing an event once a month. Basically, after I did the first one, I didn't expect over 120 people to show up. I invited 25 people. Everyone bought, brought people. Everyone supported. But what was crazy is 500 people in a day was the most I've ever fed. And so in my head, I thought I was accomplished. And then everyone was like, when's the next one? And that was kind of like, oh my God, there has to be a next one. Like, I just, (laughs) you don't think about it because it's like you've gone from feeding one or two people or a couple to 500 a day. And you're like, what do you mean the next one? But then in that moment, it reminded me the same people are going to be hungry tomorrow. So to never be so caught up on what I've done today, because tomorrow it changes until we alleviate the problem. There's always going to be work to be done. And so... At the time, I started making it monthly because having Suja sponsor the the drinks and then me buying the pizza and doing that, I'm like, maybe I can get other companies to help. So that kind of gave me an idea, like, if I have a month to prepare for a party, because at that time, it was like we just threw it on the streets. But it was a party on the block. Like, we made an unofficial block party by just having tables out, you know? Then I was like, so many people showed up. You're talking about over 120 volunteers. We fed 500 people. I was like, we need a space for this because no one really wanted to leave. Everyone wanted to be there. And and I realized I couldn't just give them food and go. They wanted to mingle. They wanted to know about us. They wanted to build a relationship. So I started really thinking of like, oh, I got to ask some nonprofits if I can use their space. You know, what can I do? So I just started thinking about that. And then I started reaching out to companies, getting a lot of no's because you're talking about five years ago, I was asking for vegan food. Vegan wasn't even a word. I was just asking, I was literally like, do you guys have any fruits and vegetables to to donate?
0: Well, that was, that was my next question is what were you doing differently? Cause I'm sure there are a ton of people that are or organizations that, you know, go out there and feed homeless people on Skid Row. What were you doing? What were you bringing to the table? No pun intended. That was different. Yeah.
1: So, <laughs> well, so I I was, I've been plant-based since I was 19 years old. I'm 32 now. So it wasn't even called plant-based. I went raw. Like that's what it was called during the time. I was doing like raw food, nothing cooked. Like I went really like purist when it came to food. And this is again, something I heard in my meditation. So no one understood just five, six years ago, there wasn't these fake meats. Like there wasn't, it was just fruits and vegetables. So when I was getting like the vegan pizzas and things like that, I had already been doing this for over I mean since so I was 19 years old. So in my mind, I didn't realize I was being different. But everything about what I did had always been different. So I didn't think anything of it because I didn't put an emphasis, oh, we're giving better food. It was just like, I'm I'm looking for foods that I eat. I just I didn't have the idea that people are lower than us, so I should give them less. The idea was I want to share. So I eat at Whole Foods, I'm gonna ask Whole Foods to help. I get my vitamins from sprouts. I'm going to ask sprouts to help. So our partners and the people I went to were always the same food I ate because I never understood this idea of like, you'll go have like this fancy dinner and then do a canned food drive. You won't eat the food that you're donating.
0: Mm. How did the vegan food go over on um, on Skid Row?
1: Well, the thing is, vegan wasn't a thing for anybody anywhere. So- Mm -hmm. Outside of Skid Row, everyone thought I was weird. <laughs> <laughs> so, everyone thought I was. So when it first happened, they used to call us the lettuce girls. They'd be like, she's trying to feed us like we're rabbits. That's what they used to joke and say. They'd always be like, oh, she's she's giving us rabbit food. And then so, which I think it created this really cool space because it was like this resistance, but I was not letting up. I was like, well, we give out fruits and vegetables. And if you want some, have some. I remember one day, like, it was so much trial and error. Like, our first monthly sponsor was Juice Served Here. And that's when we started hitting, like, 10,000 meals a month because of companies like that. But long story short, I remember one day they gave me, like, probably five or 6,000 of their lemon, maple, cayenne pepper drinks. (laughs) And I didn't think anything of it because I – yeah, I give them out skid row. They were like, "You trying to kill us?"
0: Right, <laughs> so you had them all on the master cleanse. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so everyone, and they already trusted me. They were like, "She's gonna kill us." <laughs> I was like, "No." So I had all these <laughs> moments where I had all these moments where I was going through this health journey and bringing an entire community along with me. But the coolest thing ever that happened was doing those things and then people coming back to me, war vets. Like, you know, you're talking about like steak and potato guys. They still eat the same way as they ate at war, you know? And they're like, baby, that food really made me feel better. Like them having these these moments of that made me feel so much better that they never had that before. Or no one ever brought me this kind of like it was so foreign they were almost they were interested about it because it was so different than everyone else they were like she's bringing us black lemonade like they're like so confused like what they would be like (laughs) teasing me like what do you have now yes and then I'm having to explain to them I'm sorry I don't have any like iceberg lettuce but you've got arugula today be prepared it tastes like pepper like I had to find ways to describe to them what they were about to go through and so it got to the point when I started working with Health Aid, and I'm bringing kombucha. My selling point was if tea and beer had a baby, and that was because I was describing their experiences so they could understand what they were about to take. Because you know, you gave them some great stuff. You gave them some some stuff. I tell them this tastes good. This ta- this is for health. Like, and now it's completely different. They love it. They love to the point where so many people from Skid Row will not eat from anyone other than us
2: because they <laughs> they're started <picky>. to see-
1: <laughs> now they're picky and they're they but they started to like collect their own information and like why when I eat their food I feel sick they started right. seeing it for themselves I never had to say it they started to see the health benefits just through their own experience or people who were drug addicts being able to give them coconut water hydrate them cleanse them like we've been helping on that level.
0: It's ironic that the L.A. homeless people are are snobs when it comes to the type of food that they Because they they have a
1: right to be, right? No, I think it's
0: great. I think it's awesome.
1: But that's what happens when you love people. When you love them, you empower them to feel like they deserve more and they don't need table scraps. To me, when someone feels like I can take anything, you haven't even loved them well enough for them to stand up tall and ask Mm. for something that they demand. So that is just showing that we love them well.
0: You had a very interesting mission statement, which which was uh, creating sacred spaces where people can actually be seen, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: A hundred percent.
0: And so that's what this was all about, it was about feeding people food that allowed them to be seen. And then ultimately, you went on to create an actual physical space that allowed yeah, people it to feel- was
1: human. it was humanizing people. Mm-hmm. And I feel like as a woman of color, I know what it's like not to be viewed as human. I've been there. I, you know, I haven't, I haven't had it where it's always been that easy, where I haven't had to deal with what it's like to be othered. I've been othered in so many spaces. I connect to them because I get it. I understand what it's like. Whether you're homeless or you're a person of color navigating in a white space, you know what other feels like. Whether you're mixed in a space that that's not normal. Like, I've been othered, so it was so important to me that we see each other, we respect each other, we love each other. And it was important that we pour dignity into people because that's what I'm seeing a lot of. They're stripped of their dignity. And it's by their daily treatment, it validates their worth. That's anybody.
0: Talk about the concept of suffering well, which is another Mm -hmm. thing that you, you said you learned on Skid Row.
1: Yeah, I think that my respect and regard for people who suffer well, being in so many privileged spaces, you realize that people don't suffer well because the world is at their feet. You have people who every day are disappointed, who are hurt, who are mistreated, and they wake up and smile. They find something to be happy about. They live in devastating conditions, and yet they can wake up and turn on music and be happy enough just to dance in the street. Like the joy that they have, you don't hear about suicide on Skid Row. You hear about it in Beverly Hills. People are hanging themselves from mansions, not from poor areas. And that's the truth. So I have so much admiration for people who suffer well because those are people who have faced war and, 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 and so many difficulties and are still showing up and contributing to the world in a, in a positive way. These are people that have, have every right to burn the city down and don't. And that's the truth. That is suffering well. That this city, this city is still standing. There's 58,000 people living in poverty because resources have been taken from them.
0: Can you talk about the story of Kevin? Who's I met him when I met you for the first time. Yeah, when you were giving that talk.
1: Little Kevin. Oh my God, I, I see him all the time. He's at the shop all the time. Um, <laughs> Kevin is. It, it's beautiful because it is a success story for us, and I say that because he was my turning point to realize my. To realize my radical love meant something. And I think that's why, like, when I see him, I think of that. I think of the fact that when I was on Skid Row six nights a week at two, four in the morning, handing out food, you don't always know why you're doing what you do when you're called. You don't really know what it means if it'll ever mean something to someone if you're being crazy like you just you don't know there's no point of reference and to see Kevin who was living on Skid Row who was homeless who disappeared for a while and I just kept thinking about this guy who didn't speak much and now I mean I can't get him to be quiet you know someone that I've like empowered in a way by being loving and I think it was one of those situations we didn't go to Skid Row to have a complex of saviors, right? Like we didn't, I didn't go there with the idea that I would save people or change them. I went there with the idea that I had love to give and I was willing to give it. And to see the love that you're willing to give transmute into healing and empowerment for someone to the point where he no longer lives on Skid Row. He's working, he has a place to stay and he comes to our shop and buys stuff. And now he feeds people on Skid Row. Every Thanksgiving, he's now doing a feeding for people in the community. I've watched a complete 360. I watched what love can do. I watched when little things aren't little, they're not small. I don't think we always realize, but defining moments are glimpses, they're small things. And that's what I realized with him. He, he changed my ideas to being beyond radical, but to knowing they could shift the world if I could only lead with my heart, and that was my defining moment because he got off skid row. You know, we've had people be sober, like the fact that like our program wasn't built off "I'm gonna get you off the streets," I'm gonna stop you from doing drugs. It was built off "I'm gonna give you the love you deserve," I'm gonna give you love without reason, and let that birth whatever it birth because for every person, it's something different.
0: Wow, that's such a really, really important point to make. Instead of going there looking to save people from whatever their aff- affliction may be in your eyes, just love them and let them feel seen and heard, and then something will be born from that. So you you got another interesting cognition in your meditation. <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> um, had so to, many. <laughs> <laughs> that had to do with that had to do with going all in full time on the skid row experience. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, this was another crazy moment I had. Oh gosh. So um, (laughs) like I was saying before, my downloads, I call them like my spiritual downloads, my guidances. I got a download right after my mother passed away. That was probably one of the first times I felt shattered. I feel like I've always been resilient. I've always jumped back up. But in my meditation, I heard her say, Go pitch a tent and sit for seven days. And I do a skid row. Uh huh. This was after she passed. It was like one of the first times I heard her voice. I've always heard like spirits and things like that. Like I've always been a medium in that way. Like I've always heard spirits. I can't even like deny that. Like I've always been able to hear other things, other messages. But it was the first time I had heard her voice. It was her energy, her resonance. And I'm just like, in my head, I thought I was so broken that I was like, maybe I can go serve more. In my mind, it was like, every time I've been hurt, for me, I've been able to transmute my pain through service Um, and by giving more, helping more, showing up. I think it keeps you from being a victim and you become more empowered and that's just my approach to giving. Everyone has a different reason as to why they do. But in that moment, I thought I was there to help heal other people. But I really, and that's that's when I decided to stay on Skid Row. I thought I was staying there for seven days. It ended up being a, a seven in numerology, but it was actually 43 days. <laughs>
2: <Okay>. and,
1: <laughs> and that was that was the seven I had seen. And I stayed on Skid Row and the last day was the craziest feeling in the world because I felt the pain of my mom completely like lift off me. It was the weirdest. It was like the weirdest like supernatural experience I've ever had because I thought I was there to heal people and I was really there to be healed.
0: Wow! And when you were preparing for that, was the the, the idea to? go down there with no money and just kind of have the whole experience that they were having? Or do you go to yeah. Patagonia and get a, get like some tents and whatnot? No,
1: and- no, no, no. No, it was <laughs> I went there with no money. The goal was to understand the daily life because I have been homeless, but I always say that like what made my homelessness softer is I had a car to sleep in. So I had a car to sleep in. I got a uh, membership at a gym and I would go shower there. And I would eat food at grocery stores. It's not really stealing because you ate it there.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so that's, <laughs> that's that's what I would do. And so I always call my homelessness, it was like five-star homelessness. Like I felt like I still had resources. Like I was able to afford a $30 a month membership, right? So I would hustle, always had that. And like being in that space of like sleeping in my car, I just – It's different than being on Skid Row. There's levels to poverty. There's levels to homelessness. And so I understood, I felt a very small fraction of it because I always was able to get myself out of whatever I had gotten myself into. But this was like, I mean, Skid Row. This was, I mean, it it doesn't get any deeper than that, but it's like, how can you help someone fully if you don't understand it? And I learned, oh my God, my eyes, just understanding from an emotional standpoint of how much resilience you have to have, how strong of a spirit I learned, like the real prophets and gurus are on Skid Row. Those are the real, the real spiritual leaders that should be having voices because they're able to transmute things I've never even experienced.
0: What were some of the experiences you had in terms of getting set up and just the day to day of living down on Skid Row. I I heard you tell a story about trying to buy tarps. And I would love to hear more about that as well.
1: Yeah. So just, it was very, so in my mind, because you don't need that much money to live like bare minimum, right? Like in my head, like I basically, it's so crazy. LA never rains. So when I went down there, I didn't think I would encounter any type of rain. And of course I did, which I don't know. It was like a sick joke. I literally, one day it's just completely gray outside and they're like, oh, it's going to rain. And I'm like, wait, what? And they're like, yeah. you're." I'm like, well, what do you guys use for rain? They're like, you're going to have to get tarps. And they're like, "It's uh, you need two tarps for your tent because my tent was small and they're about $12 each. And so I, in my mind, I'm like, oh, $24. I can come up with that. I can panhandle to get that. Like in my head, it was like I can ask people for $24. And so I went to 7th and Figueroa where there's like a huge, like little outdoor mall strip in downtown. It's a fine, the financial area. I went there during a busy time. Cause I was like, you know what? There's going to be hundreds of people walking by constantly. I'm about to ask people for money. And so I said, okay, I got to do this. Got to try it out. Even though that's something that also makes me uncomfortable. The idea of asking for something, but it's like, I was at least telling people what I was getting. And there's a target right there where the tarps are. So I was literally telling, asking people saying like, you know, I'm trying to raise $24 because I have to buy two tarps for my tent. I'm currently living on Skid Row and I need help uh, getting my, my tarps for the rain. I had seen over 600 people that day and everyone said no to me. Everyone. Like to the point where I've, I don't, I don't sit in like fury often and long because I don't like that energy. I was furious that day. I was so angry by the level of like resilience to help. No one wanted to help me. Like the energy that went into the nose and the not help could have easily solved my problem. And I was crying. Like I sat down because I was angry to tears. Because I'm like I'm explaining my story. You can tell I'm not a drug addict. Like everyone has an excuse as to why they don't help. How do you see 600 people and no one give you a dollar? I was asking everyone for a dollar. I didn't even ask them for the whole thing. And I explained to them what people were disregarding me. People were cutting me off before I could even ask for help. And so I sat down. Mind you, I had a little change bucket that said "Love Without Reason" on it. So in my head, it was just like, what? I sit down. And it's literally like a movie. I sit down and I'm crying because I'm like telling myself like I need to get – and I'm crying again out of anger. This is like the anger tears of like I can't believe we are this far behind in our love. And then I hear change drop into my my little box that says love without reason. And I go to look up because when I tell you when this change hit, it, it's restored. It was like I got angry and it was like the moment I'm like, I, yeah, I get to forgive. You know what I mean? It was mm-hmm, like one of those mm-hmm. like, I wasn't, I wasn't wrong. I, I, was, I was wrong. People are loving. I turn and it's a homeless pan. Mm. I burst it out. I mean, like, I can mm. barely talk about it now without crying. I burst it out into like tears. Like I was crying so hard I couldn't even move. Cause he was like limping away. <laughs> like he was just like, <laughs> <laughs> and so, so my friend Nemo, which was like far away, runs to the man. Cause I can't even move. I'm like crying. Cause I'm like, I can't believe it. of course, of course someone homeless is the one that's loving. And so like, I'm, I'm crying. Cause I'm like, can't get it together. I'm stuck. He runs to him to grab him and tells him like, no, no, no. Like this is kind of like a social experiment, you know, like I can't take this money from this man. And so like, Nima's asking him because I'm like in a space where I can't even talk. I'm like crying so hard. And Nima says like, why did you give her money? And he looks at me because I'm crying. I can't even explain to him what's happening because I'm so emotional It tears. And he's like rubbing my back. And he's like, because I've been there before. And like he just knew what it was like to like ask everyone for help and no one help him. So I was messed up. I was like super emotional. Every time I think about that day, I just like I cry because – He helped me. Like, he gave me money. And he opened, like, we gave him his money back, and he opened his wallet, and he didn't have anything. You know what I mean? It was like, I was I was messed up. Like, I was messed up. He He literally gave you
0: his last money.
1: And didn't think anything of it. That's what I'm telling you is, like, what makes it so, like, heart-wrenching is, like, this man is so free. It's a level of freedom that most of the world does not have. And he was just like, it's okay. And it was just like, and it was normal to him. It was normal to be in a space that's like people being good to each other is dependent on our survival, helping each other. Even if you don't have much, it's like, there's no excuse as to why you don't give. If you don't give, it's a a you problem. It has nothing to do with what the resources you have. That resistance is within your own heart. That resistance is you. It's nothing other than that everything that we say we have and don't have is an excuse and that completely opened my eyes to to life to abundance and scarcity and how deeply rooted in our hearts and how our hearts are wired and that was one of the the, the hardest And it takes a lot because when you go from those spaces and then you go into privileged spaces, people have so much and they won't give you a dime. And they call the police on you. you. They They won't. Oh, my God. And so it's hard when you see someone. And even when you think about it, it's not someone that's robbing you. And we can't even talk about how this world has been robbed of so many things from so many people. These aren't even people robbing you. They're just asking for some help. They're so humble that they have put themselves in the lowest position possible to be asking for help, and they're still denied it. That's why people should be grateful that the city hasn't burned down from the amount of pain that they've caused.
0: What did you find? I I read a statistic that said that People who go through the foster care system, I think it was through look, researching your story, uh, 40% of them or something like that, they end up incarcerated or end up homeless. If you had to categorize the people that lived on Skid Row, like what background would you say that they predominantly
1: come from? When I think of number one, I think of foster care. Because so many people don't have anyone to call in family because they, they were given up in birth. Mm-hmm. So, so, so after eighteen,
0: care. they get they just get released, and then they're just on homeless. Oh
1: yeah, Mo- on average, over fifty percent of kids that turn eighteen become homeless within six months. They have nowhere to go. Nowhere to go. Like where? Where do you go to your high school friend's parents' house? Like where do you go? You're a child. You just graduated high school. Only three percent of foster kids go to college because. That's, a le- that's not a level of intelligence. That's a, le- a level of neglect. And so not to say that college is the answer. I didn't go to college and came out just fine. But it's just showing the levels of I had the opportunity to. They aren't given the opportunity. So foster care, 100%. Because there's, I mean, the foster care system needs to start over. Literally, like this, the foundation of this country needs to start over. The co- foster care system has to start from scratch. I would be okay if they threw everything away and said, "We're gonna start start tomorrow from scratch." We don't even know what we're doing. Them not knowing what they're doing will be more positive than what they've done, because their numbers are too low to even respect the system. You know, so that's number one. A huge thing that we see a lot is military mm. vets, PTSD. Oh my God. My favorite guy. I was with him a couple of days ago. His name is Walter. He was in Vietnam. And someone like him, where he survived the war, a lot of his friends didn't make it. They had him in a rehab in Chicago. And like he told me, he went to Skid Row because they kept him in a rehab and just kept drugging him up. And he was like, you know, I'm hurt. I went through things, but I don't want to die like this. And he literally came to Skid Row because he was like, I'd rather be on Skid Row than drugged up. Cause he was like, They're gonna kill me in this place. Because basically everyone's not I mean, the system doesn't teach you to work through your problems. They teach you to medicate them. That's the infrastructure of the system. That's just what it is. And that's fine. Our society is addicted to a lot of things because of it. But there's also people that don't want they don't want they want to work through their problems and they just want support. And you've got people who can you imagine trying to work through your problems because they're medicated, your new problem is fighting your addiction and it's not even addressing the actual root issue. So it's layering problems on top of each other. And so you have all, like the biggest thing I notice within everyone and every walk of life is unaddressed trauma. A lot of the people that are there are in such a deep hole of trauma that's been unaddressed and then it's been... Uh, it's a chain reaction. It's been layered on top of each other, and it's all this pain and people being unloved. All of it is unaddressed trauma, and when you're uh, you're when you're not loved well,
0: right? Not being seen. Hmm. So then you created a documentary from your yes. forty three days. Yes. On Skid Row. What's the status on that?
1: We shoot this Sunday. In two weeks, we go into post production. So we cut uh you know, we cut a um a like sizzle reel, but now we're going to, we're going into post production because we've also been filming the effects that COVID has had on the homeless community. Right.
0: Beautiful. So now and the world you, is
1: different. Just in this little bit of time, the world has turned upside down.
0: Right. And you uh you have a bodega. Talk a little yes. bit about 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 that.
1: Yes, for anyone that doesn't know what a bodega is, it's anyone that's Afro-Latino that owns a, a market for us. Usually it's like predominantly Puerto Rican or Dominican, but it's, it's our, our bodegas are one of our safe spaces and communities. The thing is, in bodegas, especially in New York or in Puerto Rico, everyone knows you in the community. It's your corner store that's not necessarily affiliated with a big market. You know, It's where you can get all your essentials, all your needs, but then you know the people in the community. It's the hub that people go to. And I wanted to create that in L.A. L.A. doesn't really have that, that bodega community. And I wanted to introduce it because I felt like it was, it was so important. And I think that now what we're going through in these last couple of weeks more than ever, people are realizing the importance of community unity. And so I wanted to create a space where people in the neighborhood, specifically food deserts, that need healthy food and access, could have access to healthy food without it going against the, the, going against the price point of the community. Because the biggest issue is a Whole Foods is a wonderful market, but a huge percentage of America can't afford it. So it doesn't make it accessible. It makes it commercialized.
0: Is this a part of the Lunch on Me nonprofit?
1: Yes. So basically, we've reached within our five years, we distribute 10,000 free plant-based organic meals a month. We wanted to now create markets that gave everyone access and became more zero waste. I like to call our markets the goodwill of organic. And so we do a lot of partnerships, a lot of um repurposing of food. We work with farmers and we get a hold of a lot of food that would go to landfills that are completely good. We just produce so much and we don't have a strong system for repurposing in America. And so I wanted to focus on all that.
0: It's called La Bodega, right?
1: Yes, La Bodega. The concept of that was I wanted to it's it is different than traditional bodegas because it is plant-based. It is vegan. It's kind of like if LA and New York met, it's kind of what it would look like. And then, but with elements of Lunch on Me, Love Without Reason, which was you come into our bodega, you will always see street family there because it's also a hub where anyone who's homeless can come get a free meal. So they drop in all day, just grabbing a meal and going. But it was a place where it was like, everyone's invited.
0: Yeah, I've been there and I, I think it's wonderful. I mean, it's, it's, you know, I lived in New York before and there's definitely bodegas there, but it's a different, it's a more eclectic <laughs> experience than a traditional <laughs> New York, New York bodega. And I just, I just love the way that the retail part is curated. You've got really beautiful, you got re- really beautiful things. And the friend that I was with, she bought a bunch of plants when she was in there. So there's not a lot of bodegas that sell. Beautiful succulents, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and and make America love again hats and all of these kinds of <laughs> things, and wonderful yes. coconut water with little bits of coconut in it. I mean, it was it was really really amazing. So I, I think that was a really a job well done. And if anybody listening to this is planning a trip to Los Angeles and things are open back up, you definitely want to put that on your to-do list to, m- to make a trip downtown to La Bodega because it's such a special, I think it's a very special LA type of experience. And I mean that in a good way. Yeah. And that you can go somewhere where it doesn't look like you're going to find that little oasis and you end up stumbling upon this really beautiful place where I, you'll probably end up spending a good hour just hanging out and, and watch yes. people watching and, and having some wonderful food.
1: Yes. I'm really, we're so excited. Like what we've been able to do with the bodega and our next venture is we're in the process of getting a drink truck. So we're going to have the bodega on wheels and it's going to be stationed in Long Beach. Amazing. So hopefully we'll be able to bring that to just different communities where everyone gets a chance to have holistic healing, healthy food, and then the proceeds from our store go into our programs from sponsoring people to helping with resumes to getting jobs. Like we do a lot of stuff within the community and the bodega was our brick and mortar. That was to help fund it because we're not government funded and we don't receive grants. We just work directly with our community, raise our capital ourselves and work with just like private donors that want to help monthly community based people who just want to see the community have better from, people-based organizations and not government structures.
0: Yeah. I was going to say, what's the best way if someone has a food company or if they just want to be involved, what's the best way for someone to do that?
1: Oh, they can email us at hi at hiatlunchonme.org. We're always looking to partner with community people, with independent owners that have access to food and holistic healing we're all about everyone coming together. It's a potluck. Our whole concept is a potluck. If we all bring something to the table, we all have a feast. So there isn't anything too big or small.
0: What do you what do you need help with with the documentary?
1: The documentary, I'm currently going into post. If anyone if anyone does sound and wants to come out in the next 2-3 weeks cuz we're going to be I'm just filming interviews and things like that. Even just studio recording, that's really all I need help with in that part because um, majority of it is shot. I'm just getting more of like the interview stuff now, but if anyone has that or a studio that I can film. Is it, fi- is of, it
0: financed? I know post-production can be kind of expensive.
1: I'm paying for everything myself.
0: <laughs> okay. So we
1: have, we have a, we have a fundraiser for it on our crowd rise for anyone that wants to help because everything's just kind of come out of my pocket.
0: Okay. Beautiful.
1: So yeah, if anyone wants to help, I would never. I we would never deny help because it's a lot of work for us.
0: I would love to just continue talking for another hour and hear all about the details of living on skid row. But but I like to also leave the listener wanting more, and I think this is enough to give them to whet their appetites so that they can come in and and engage with you guys in whichever ways can be helpful for everyone. But I just wanted just to, to say. Again, thank you for taking time to to have this dialogue with me. And I just want to I like to finish these conversations by offering up some of my own reflections from hearing the story and tying things back to childhood. So, remembering that you were talking about painting and drawing and what you were doing maybe without even realizing it was making things better than than what they were. And I've seen this in so many stories where where the intent behind why someone did what they did when they were young, it ended up manifesting into their purpose later on in life. And, and and I think yours is probably one of the clearer examples of that, where when you go anywhere, and especially going to Skid Row and to whatever homeless areas and whatever cities you happen to be in, you don't see homeless people. You see Angels, and you see people who have the potential to be anything they want to be, if their environment is nurtured, if they feel seen, and if they feel heard. And um, and it seems like that that has been with you for your entire life. And thank God you were blessed with the angels of your grandmother and your drug addicted aunts to help you help to familiarize you with those kinds of environments, so that you would not be intimidated when you saw that again later in life in those uh, homeless areas and your friend Jamila, who's been with you and your nonprofit efforts and of course your sweet mother who still communicates with you (laughs) through your meditations and tells you what to do um, and how to (laughs) help. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And so I just want to acknowledge you for your heroism, for your courage, for your bravery, for your, your willingness to continue, to keep doing what you know you're here to do. I did have one question for you actually that w- I would like to ask because it it's come up so much not just in this interview but and in also in my research. What do you think happens when someone passes?
1: I think our energy travels and and goes where it wants to go. I think it, it evolves and it and it I feel like it's 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 a doorway. You know, um, in Louisiana, they have a term called they're visiting the thin places. And I think that I don't know if it's if it's far from us. It feels like it's just a frequency, you know, that we might change and exist in. But it feels like maybe we go somewhere and our dreams are our life and vice versa. So maybe they're in a dream state. And then when they contact us, that's their, that is their dream, you know, but it feels very connected. It doesn't feel like we go far.
0: Cause I have a theory that what you believe happens when you die very much informs how you live your life. And, mm-hmm. and it seems as though you're definitely not here to make money <laughs> in, 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 this, in, in, in the direct sense of that phrase. You're here to give and to serve and really to help help people in whatever ways you can and i think there's a there's a inherent understanding that when you do that everything will come that you need and when you when this whole life known as lorea gaston you know comes to its final conclusion and you transition into that next stage i think that you recognize that that is that is the wealth that we are here to accumulate, and so yeah. just want to just want to acknowledge that as well. Oh, I you. love that! Thank you for that thank example. You, Thanks Life. for modeling that for all of us who listen to this episode. Thank you so much for listening to the re-airing of my interview with Larea Gaston of Lunch on Me. I find the way that Larea courageously lives her ethics and love incredibly inspiring, and I hope you did too. You can find links to her book, Love Without Reason, everywhere books are sold. And you can also see what she's been up to at loreacom That's L-A-R-A-Y-I-A.com. I'll put links to everything that she and I discussed in the show notes on my website, lightwatkins.com slash show. And if this is your first time listening to The Light Watkins Show, we've got an incredible archives of interviews with other luminaries, such as Saul Williams, the spoken word artist, Ed Milette, Ava Duvernay, the director, Marcus Samuelson, the chef, Stephen Pressfield, the author, Young Pueblo, the poet, and many others who have shared how they found their path and their purpose. You can also search interviews by subject matter. If you want to see interviews only of people who have taken leaps of faith or people who've navigated health challenges, or people who've navigated financial struggles, you can get a list of all of those specific episodes also at lightwatkins.com slash show. And you can watch these interviews on my YouTube channel. Just search Light Watkins podcast and you'll see the whole playlist of all the interviews. And last but not least, if you're the type of person that likes to hear all of the mistakes and the false starts and the chit chat at the beginning and the end of the episodes, you can listen to the raw unedited versions only in my happiness insiders community. And you'll find that at the happinessinsiders.com. And when you're there, you can also take my 108 day meditation challenge along with a bunch of other challenges and master classes for becoming the best version of you. One way you can support this show if you feel inspired to do so because you really love this episode is you can look at your device right now, click on the name of the podcast, the light show. Scroll down past the previous episodes and then you'll see a space with some blank stars. And so, you know, a lot of podcast hosts say leave me a rating, but you don't quite know how to leave a rating. That's how you leave a rating. Just click that star all the way on the right. If you want to leave a five star rating and if you want to go the extra mile and write a couple of lines about which episodes you recommend someone listen to when they first discover this podcast, that would be very helpful. Imagine if you were that person and you're looking for something inspirational because you're going through a hard time and you stumble across this podcast, you wanna obviously find the most inspiring thing to listen to. So what do you say that is? And if you can identify one, write it in the review so that people can find these episodes very quickly. Thank you very much for that in advance. I really do appreciate that. And I look forward to hopefully seeing you back here next week with another story about someone just like me and you who took a leap of faith in the direction of their purpose. And until then, keep trusting your intuition, keep following your heart, keep taking your leaps of faith. And if no one's told you recently that they believe in you, I believe in you. I really do. I really believe in you. Thank you very much. Have a great day. If you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.